Hey everyone, welcome to the Healthy for Life podcast where we will be discussing maintainable, sustainable, conscious living. I'm your host, Sarah Grace. Thanks for joining me. Hey everyone, welcome back to a new episode of Healthy for Life. Thanks so much for joining me again. This week, the focus is on not taking no for an answer, I guess, really sticking to your truth and just, uh, especially when it comes to your health, that health is gaining health is not an overnight thing and maintaining health can also take a little bit of work. But once you find that sweet spot, it is so easy to just cruise in it and to feel good and to have energy. And I just, I'm so inspired by my guest today and her journey that she went from being super severely debilitating sick to living a full, beautiful, incredibly productive life. And so I'm really excited to bring her on and have her share her story. And I hope that you all find it truly inspiring because she took what could have probably been a bedridden situation for people, a wheelchair for the rest of their life. She took that and changed it around and is now somebody that, I mean, she travels the world and lives an incredible life. And so remember, it doesn't matter what diagnosis you have. That isn't the end all be all. You can, you have the power to change things in your life. You have the power to educate yourself, to read, to search, to learn, what it takes. And you can listen to yourself. Your body will tell you what works for you, what feels right. And so I think we have this kind of idea that we get a diagnosis and that's it. And we have to do what we're told and we have to take what we're given and, and just, it is what it is. I don't know why it's happening. There is a reason for every single thing that goes on in your body. There is a reason why your body responds the way it does, why you feel the way you do. And so not only should you, should you question, but also you should educate yourself to make decisions for your health. Nobody can do that for you. Not the best research hospital, not the best, most elite doctors. You hold the power to change your health and to be, to listen to your body and to know what is the best way for you to live. And so I'm going to bring Mary on here today and have her share her incredible story with you all. Hey, Mary, thanks so much for joining me today. I know it's been tough for you and I to connect with all of your travels, but um, I'm so glad that you're here and just introduce yourself and kind of tell everybody a little bit about your background. Sure. And thank you so much for having me. And thank you for your flexibility. I know I've been <laughs> had to reschedule a few times. So my name is Mary Reddick. I'm a nutritionist who specializes in nervous system disorders and, and rare conditions, immune system disorders, autoimmune. And I spend the bulk of my time traveling around doing my own self funded research with tribes around the globe who have not yet been touched by post-colonial diets. Wow. So 
I mean, I'm just like, I feel like I want to live vicariously through you because um, I just think it's incredible what you're getting to do. But I know that you've been on quite a journey to get to this point. So can you kind of tell everybody a little bit about your background and how you got to become a nutritionist, kind of what inspired this whole evolution of sorts? Sure. So when I was 18, I was studying on a field station. My, my plan was to become a marine biologist, and I was studying on a field station in the Bahamas. And I became very sick with what at the time I thought was just a flu, but ended up uh, really impacting my whole body. And uh, I didn't recover from. Over the years, it turned into organ disease uh, throughout from kidney, liver, lung, thyroid, and brain, of course, and turned into a condition called dysautonomia, post-viral dysautonomia, which is a, a deregulation of the autonomic nervous system where you don't send blood to the organs and amongst other things. So I ended up bed bound for a very long time and very sick. And when my health was really going downhill sharply, we diverted from Western medicine, not because I didn't believe it worked great for some things, but it, it was not working for my condition. And so my family and I started researching a great deal and doing a lot of diets Ironically, at the time, I didn't think I ate very poorly. I, I tended to eat healthier than my friends. I grew up as an athlete, uh, but I clearly was not eating correctly for my nervous system and for my immune system. And so I started trying lots and lots of different protocols. We did about 17 different diets, along with lots of different uh, methods from acupuncture to EFT, you name it. I kind of threw the kitchen sink at it and actually was, was able to recover fully, get into full remission from neuropathy, uh, disease in the organs, and dysautonomia, uh, it took a long time. It was about a four-year journey of healing and a 12-year illness, but I'm very lucky that it ended at 12 years. Most people's does not reverse at all. Uh, and it was it was through nutrition. So when, when I healed simply by buying different groceries and adhering to a very different diet, I was so enamored that I, I couldn't get enough knowledge. So I went back to school. I had finished my undergrad and I went back to school uh, to study nutrition formally, thinking it would just be a hobby and ended up turning into just the most <laughs> fabulous career. I could ever imagine. So did you, did you find that you were sick, you know, leading up to that, that point, like as a teen, did you not feel well ever? Or was it like out of nowhere that you all of a sudden were like, I'm sick and I'm not getting better? Yeah, it was actually out of nowhere. I really wasn't as perfect of health as I knew, right? I mean, I was an athlete. I was working out for hours a day. I woke up with ease. I didn't need coffee. I had lots of friends. I had great relationships. I just was healthy in all ways. And so it very much was out of the blue. I did not grow up sickly. Wow. And so you guys went, you know, mainstream, did all the tests, did everything you possibly could. Did they put you on prescription medications or anything like that to try to fix it? Yes. Uh, I have no idea how many prescriptions I was put on over the years, but at the time I decided to get off my medicine, I was actively taking 17 different prescriptions. And some of those were many times a day. Wow. And so how did you yeah. go to school during this time of being sick? 
Well, it took me 12 years just for my undergrad because I started my undergrad when I got sick. And so I would go, I would usually get propped up by medication for a short period of time and then need to come home and get cared for and have to re-enroll, start over. You, you lose enormous amounts of credits every time you do that. So I also changed my major a few times during that in an attempt to uh, do something more realistic. You know, it became very apparent I couldn't stand up in a lab to do research with dysautonomia, you can't stand up for more than a minute or so. So, um, so, you know, I was changing my major. And then also, I would think that I was starting to feel a little bit better and then just get hit extra hard and have to come home. And at one point, you know, I was out of school for four solid years as well. So uh, maybe even five, I'd have to check. But because of that, it, it took an enormous amount of time. To finish school. So then how did you find the program that you became, you know, a nutritionist in? And because I know, I know a little bit about your philosophy of nutrition. It's definitely not mainstream. So did you find that when you got into the college setting and into the programs that they still kind of tended towards that mainstream or the, the food pyramid? Did you have to kind of flip that upside down as you learned or... That's a great question. So the school that I went to was how I found it essentially was that it, uh, the practitioner who had helped my mentor with the GAPS diet, she had gone to this school for nutrition. And so I went based on that. It was still disappointing. I mean, I don't think any of the nutritional schools are great. I think perhaps the best one would be one I didn't know of at the time, which was the, the nutritional therapy school in the Northwest. But that doesn't apply for practitioners in all states. You can practice in, I think, 20 to 30 states, something like that, but not all of them. So, you know, with schooling, it really depends on where you're planning on practicing as to where you need to go to. But uh, but I went because I respected this lady's knowledge. It was still not great, but it was better, I would say, than the traditional okay, food pyramid. Right. And so then you went through the program, you finished, and did you come out knowing what you know now? Or was it like you really started to learn just through your own experience? You know, I think nothing can teach you as well as reversing illness in your own body. And one of the gifts of dysautonomia was that I did have disease in all the major organs and the minor ones as well. And with that, you get a great deal of confidence on what works and what doesn't. And because it wasn't easy to heal or quick, I really learned a lot in the process. And also because there were no books written on my conditions, uh, I, I learned so much because I was so hungry to learn. And I think when you're learning from a, a place of survival, as opposed to just basic interest, it, the knowledge really sticks in. It's very deep. You don't lose it. So as you read another book, another book, another book, you start to tie things together and you remember tiny bits of other books that then make sense in the largest, larger sphere when you read the next 10 books. And so I would say really that is where I got my confidence and my knowledge. And then I, I continued to get it because it's such a 
such an interest and such a, a deep field. I'm constantly learning new things to this day. And at this point now, I think my greatest teachers, aside from conferences, are, uh, you know, and doctors presenting there really are my clients. I learn so much from my clients. I get to see what works and what doesn't with, you know, thousands of people. And that is far more valuable. I find than the formal education. Yeah, it, it's so interesting, and I can definitely relate. Having dealt with some of my own health issues throughout the years, it is so true that you have this certain hunger to learn and to try to fix it, especially when nobody really has answers for you. That I feel like you do kind of internalize things more, and there's a passion there that is, you know, kind of hard to explain otherwise. I think, but. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm a huge follower of the Weston A. Price Foundation, and I know that that's kind of, it seems to me like you're almost carrying on some of the work of Dr. Price and what he was doing and going and, and studying these sort of indigenous cultures that weren't uh, influenced by industrialization. So how did you get to that point? What, what started that for you, traveling the world and doing all of that? Oh, great question. Yeah, I so admire the foundation and, and thank you. He's a big idol of mine, a hero, so to speak. So, you know, I stumbled upon his book when I was bedbound for those many years. And at the time I was a vegetarian and thought I was doing everything right dietarily. And his book, especially his chapters on Africa, really blew my world open and made me realize that maybe I needed to try something else. It, you know, if, if these Maasai and other tribes, I think he went to about 43 different tribes in, Af in his first African right. tour. And many of them, they all ate different diets, which is something I adore about the Weston A. Price Foundation. They're not dogmatic, but uh, aside from the ancestral bents, which I, I believe in as well. But the fact that there were many tribes who only consumed animal products and they were in perfect health, it really blew my mind. And so as I healed and I got better, I was an active member of the Weston A. Price Foundation. I led GAPS groups. Uh, GAPS is a, a diet that's uh, uh, respected by the Weston A. Price Society and or foundation. And so I was leading these groups. And as I got better, I started to get more confident about traveling. You know, I think for about six years after remission, I didn't do much traveling. I, as you can imagine, was, was afraid of getting sick again, of course. And I didn't feel solid in my health yet. I felt very solid that I was healthy today, but I didn't feel that that was guaranteed. You, you go through something like that where your world changes overnight and it really humbles you to the possibility of, <laughs> of, of what can happen. And so I, I was so grateful to be healthy. I just didn't want to mess with it or risk it. But as, as I got older and as I was in remission for a longer period of time, my interest started to really peak. And, uh, and I started to circle back more to the self that I was before I was sick, the person who really wanted to see the world and travel. And I got this idea to go and I did. I started traveling and as I went to more places, I started to go to tropical places again, which is of course the the one <laughs> the one area I was the most afraid of. And the more that I went to, the more I felt more safe. Certainly not impervious, certainly not like superwoman, but that if I did get sick, uh, it would be unlikely and also that I know how to get better. 
or most likely could get better. So I started to get more and more confidence and I started traveling a great deal. And that's when I decided to go to Tanzania and Uganda and Kenya and South Africa and Zimbabwe and some of these other countries and get to go actually see the tribes. I was so interested to see what had changed since Dr. Weston A. Price had been there. I was so interested to see if it was true, if people were in perfect health in these regions and if they still existed. And so I wanted to start to research these books a bit more that I had read and had been so life-changing for myself and see what it was like in actuality. So Okay, so to backtrack a little bit, so you were a vegetarian for a while, and then you mm-hmm. you started reading the Weston A. Price uh, books and their work, and then you uh, so you started to incorporate animal products. And uh, were you just at that point just adding in like grass fed animal protein, or were you going more into liver and um, the organ meats and things like that, or had you not gotten that far yet. Correct. So from about 18 until 25, at least, I was a vegetarian. And uh, and in the later years of my illness from year seven uh, on, were or really from six on, were the worst years of the illness where things got very bad. So that's why when I was bed bound, I was reevaluating my diet as to clearly this isn't working. And uh, and so when I started to eat meat, I went into grass fed beef first. That's what I started eating. I didn't start doing organ meat until a couple years later, not because I wasn't interested. It, I was really quite dependent on my parents' care at the right. time, and they didn't know how to do right. that stuff. So I waited until I I was a bit stronger. And then I started doing the the liver. I ate a lot of sweet bread. I really enjoyed that. So I would do that. Uh, and brain and those kind so of things. What is uh, sweet bread? Oh, great question. I think it's the best of the organs. It's the thymic gland, which is right in the middle of the chest. It's a big scallop-like gland. And if you want to look at studies on this, it's actually prescribed as a medical food called thymic protein A or pro-A is what it's called in studies. And it has been shown to be very helpful in regulating and strengthening the immune system. So if someone has autoimmunity, it can bring it down to a normal level. If they have poor immunity, it can bring it up. So I had read about that and uh, had been taking the packets of it. They had been prescribed, I think, at three a day. It was quite expensive. It's about $10 a day to take. And, uh, and I had been taking that for years. And it was very helpful for not getting sick and uh, for not furthering the illness. So I started eating sweetbreads a lot, but they're very tasty. They're often in five-star restaurants. And if you go back to the 1800s to about 1940, they were often the favorite food of the elite. They're, they're actually very nice in flavor. And so it's probably the best of the organ meats to tiptoe into if people haven't done organ so meats So now before. you said the packets. So how are you purchasing? Yeah. So, you know, before I knew how to prepare organ meats, I bought it as a medical food and that is what's typically prescribed. So pro, uh, thymic pro a is a, a packet supplement. It's tiny little packets of dehydrated powdered, uh, thymic gland that you dissolve under your tongue three times a day. 
to regulate the immune system. And my doctors had been recommending that for years. So I've done that for years before I learned how to cook sweetbreads. So now where are you, now that you know how to prepare these organ meats, do you have farms that you know of that you can call on to get the meats from? Because it's not like you can go to your grocery yes. store and get that kind of stuff. No. And you know, when I was doing this, it was quite different. I, I'm so grateful for how things have changed now for my clients and for people in general, because it really was quite difficult to get organs and proper dairy and all these things at the time. There were no dropship right. <laughs> companies or anything like that. So there was a farm in Ohio called Eat Food for Life, which to this day I find is the best farm. I have ever found. I mean, they have the most tasty raw A2 dairy. They have the best organ meats. Uh, so I would get everything from them, and uh, they would deliver once a okay, week. Okay, so you so you weren't were close to them, and they were delivering to you. Yes, yeah, they brought their products to Dayton, Ohio, which is where I was once a week. I think their farm was a couple oh. hours outside of there, and they had little drop locations you could go pick and up your products. And just for our listeners, like that's it is. Actually, I think a lot easier to find local farms than people think. And I feel like yes. rawmilk.com is a great way on the Weston A. Price website. Um, or it's like a website that they have or sponsor or whatever. But um, I feel I've found a lot of farms, even as I've moved, that have been approved through rawmilk.com. And that's how I've been able to find a lot of local uh, farmers and, and grass-fed meats and stuff. So um, they're all around. You just have to look for them. But um, yeah. they are. They're really everywhere. And sometimes in the places you least expect, you find some yeah. of the best. So yeah, Weston A. Price is a great website where if you get on, you find your local chapter, they can link you up to these different farms. But they are yeah. there. So, okay. So you're, you're starting to incorporate uh, grass-fed meats into your nutrition and how long would you say it it was in what what other foods were you eating like um for carbohydrates so i was already eating low carb so you know not when i was bed bound and vegetarian but i quickly found out uh, as soon as i started reading a bit that i needed to reduce my carbohydrate intake so i wasn't eating much fruit or grains or anything like that but i was certainly eating some corn and sweet potato and things like that but again it was in a low carb portion size so not too frequently okay. and uh and i ate a lot of vegetables still i was trying i had this this goal to eat, I think something like 10 vegetables a day or something. Uh, you know, I was, I was still figuring things out. So I had read books like from Dr. Weil that recommends a lot of variety and things like that. I ended up healing on, on the opposite, a lack of variety diet, but, um, but you know, it took many years of right. learning to start to figure so that out. How long would you say that you started to feel better when you were switching up from the vegetarian for going for these, these meats and stuff? Was it, did you notice a difference like pretty quickly or? I did not. No, it took a, a couple years. What I did notice a difference in was when I eliminated fruit uh, and high carbohydrate food, I noticed a very big difference in my pain. It just came down drastically. And so that was the biggest difference I would say. And, and that by default meant uh, eating more animal products, right. right? And going low carb. So you could correlate it with that. And at the same time, I also learned of the issues with soy. And I, I was eating a lot of soy at the time. And I had really quite severe hormonal conditions with that, that 
resolved as soon as I pulled the soy out of my diet and went low carb. So, so in those ways, yes, but it, it was not a quick journey, you know? I mean, it felt fun. It, it was fun, honestly. It was the first fun thing I did in a long time because it gave me purpose. And so it was nice to learn these new things. Uh, you know, every new book felt like I was entering into a secret garden of, <laughs> of a land of knowledge that, that just no one else had tapped into. So it was an exciting time. It was a fun time of trial, but it, it was right. not. And I think a lot of people probably would have given up or said, well, it's not working because I think today we're so used to like these quick results and these instant fixes. And sometimes with our health and with these types of situations, it takes time. And I, it's, I applaud you for really sticking with it and really listening to your body and, and working to figure out, you know, what was best for you. It's incredible. Oh, thank so you. Then, thank so you. you. You start to feel better. You gain your confidence back and you start traveling and you start going to Africa. How do you get to these tribes? Because. Oh, really? Yeah, that's a great question. And one everyone always wants to know. It's really through personal relationships. You know, if you jump on a site like Viator or a tour guide site, you're not likely to get a proper translator. It, in a lot of these countries, let's take Tanzania, there's over 127 different languages spoken. And so about 100 years ago, they created Swahili, which is kind of a bridge between all the different languages. But if you're going to a village and your guide speaks Swahili and the tribe speaks Swahili, you are missing a lot in translation. So I don't use those. What I usually do is get on the ground in the area and start making friendships and connections. And through that, then I can meet a, a person who grew up in the region. Typically, these villages live next to each other. And so maybe you'll have a, a Maasai village or use, hmm, let's do Batwa. You'd have a Batwa next to another village and they speak different languages. They have different customs, but because the children are all running through the forest and playing together, they speak each other's languages as well. And so I'll often find someone from the neighboring village who grew up with them, is friends with them, can speaks the language well enough to joke and laugh, right? Because that's a very high level of translation and then use them as a tour guide. And are they accepting of you coming into their villages? And they like, especially the first time you did this, was it like disappointing or were you uh, faced with a lot of roadblocks or were they like, come on in and we'll share with you or... Oh, great question. You know, in Africa, you just, and in traveling in general, you just never know what to expect. So I try to keep my expectations very low. I will outline what I want, but it's very different than America. Uh, things are not bullet pointed there. They're not organized. Things don't happen in a timely manner. It's right. a different culture. It's many right. different cultures throughout the continent. And so I was not expecting very much, but I was hopeful and I was blown away on my first trip. So I, and I continue to be, I would say, uh, they've been very welcoming so far. You know, I'm, as you know, I'm in Mexico right now and I'm headed down to Central and South America and many of the, the tribes and communities that I'm hoping to get to in South America are fully cut off. In fact, I was just speaking with a man, he's an artist who it took him eight years to get into a tribe to where they would actually let him visit. So some of them are very closed off. I haven't had that experience yet, but I may be coming into that right. shortly. Wow. 
Wow, that's incredible. And so you so you get into these tribes in Africa and do you find what Weston A. Dr. Price had talked about or have a lot of them started to become more industrialized and influenced by the cities around them? You know, so far I have been so shocked at people's wonderful level of health, just very robust. You can see, uh, let's take the Maasai or the Hudsa, you can see depending on where they are located and how much contact they have with tourists or the cities as to if they've integrated modern foods or not, you can see the degradation in the health. But overall, there's still many pockets that are in truly perfect levels of health. That's so interesting. I saw on your Instagram that you were drinking Mm -hmm. the blood of a goat from its neck. Yes. So was this something that you did in Africa? Yeah. So I've had blood with the Messiah a few times. Uh, The first time, each each village that I've been to has done it quite differently. So I've had it from the cow when the when the cow is not dying, right? So they'll. tap into the the blood once a month from a different cow and it's a harmless process to the animal. So I've done that and that's where they mix it into a gourd with milk. And then I've also done when they're slaughtering an animal and having the milk then. Now, some of the villages will uh, slit the throat of the goat as it dies, and then the blood gets poured into a big basin, and everyone drinks from that. Uh, That was my first experience, and that was pretty wild. And then uh, this last experience in Kenya with the Messiah there, they do it quite differently. They suffocated the goat, and then once it was dead, cut the neck open, and then you drink from it like a bowl, which I had seen that method before. I hadn't partaken in that method. And it seemed much more like uh, primal than it actually is. When you're when you're actually doing it, it, it makes sense. It's very clean. You don't need any utensils or cups or bowls, and uh, it's very efficient. So, did, there's no concern then of you know um, disease or bacteria or sickness then from this. Uh, I'm sure someone would say yes yeah. to that, but again. You know, these folks are in perfect health and this is how they eat regularly. It would be like our bread. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just their normal, their normal Every meal. Uh, so I, yeah, yeah, they tend to have, well, it depends. Okay, so if, uh, if they kill a cow, which is not as common because the cows are worth a lot of money to them and that's their financial system. But when they kill a cow, they'll eat off the cow for three days. And so they won't drink the blood then. So they'll have it on the day of the kill and then not for two days. So they'll go two days without blood. But with a goat, the goat only lasts for a day for the tribe, for the village. And so the blood will be every day. Now, when the meat runs out, then they'll go to milk and blood for a few days as opposed to meat and blood. So they do rotate it, but blood is the most constant of their diet. So when they are eating the animals, are they taking the meat and cooking it or are they eating it raw? And are they mostly eating the organ meats or are they also eating like the, you know, steaks and stuff? (laughs) 
<laughs> Great. Yeah, it's a, it's a mix. So so first, uh, depending on the village, again, usually the liver and kidney are going to be raw. So you eat that right after the animal dies. It gets cut into small pieces and everyone has some. And then, but sometimes they cook the liver. So that's not consistent. That's just mm -hmm. typical to have that raw. And then most of the other organs go into a stew where they make a broth with a, a very bitter herb and the, the organs and, and literally all of them. So the bowel goes in there as well, and the colon. And then the meat is quickly cooked over the fire. So they basically put the, like the leg and the chest and the other, uh, you know, the muscle meat on a stick and then lean that over the fire in a teepee-like format and cook that rather rapidly. So the meat is pretty tough. They have very strong jaws. Um, but that's, that's typically how it's eaten. And do you, are they eating like once a day then typically, or are they eating like we do breakfast, lunch, dinner? It's more like twice, but it does depend on their station in the tribe and also on the gender and where they are at the moment, whether, whether it's the dry season or the wet season, it's more often twice a day as opposed to three, uh, typically twice a day, but in some instances it is once a day. And do you find that they are eating, this is the primary source of their nutrition, but do they also make up other types of foods or any type of uh, starchy carbohydrate? Only the modern Maasai. So there are villages as you get closer to the cities that have brought in corn and some of them have brought in corn and beans as well. And and some of those villages did it a hundred years ago. So they'll think it's a traditional food. Whereas the the villages farther out that still eat their traditional Maasai diet uh, won't touch things like that. Wow. And so they're mostly just eating the animal foods and that's it. Correct. And, and also even in the modern regions where the corn and bean is are consumed uh the warriors so the the men from about the age of 12 to 30 uh depending on each individual they can go longer than that only do the blood milk and meat even in the the corn and bean villages. and so they have no none of the modern diseases that we have none what are they are what are they dying of uh, typically old age. If you go to the villages that do the corn and the beans, then they can die of infection, but not until old age. They still don't get the uh, the chronic diseases either. That's amazing. That is just yeah, so cool. it's incredible. So, are you going to write a book or what? <laughs> Yeah, yes, I am. As soon as I can get some time. Uh, so I've got all my notes from all of these different places. And I've, I've been really thinking about taking six months off to do just that. Uh, but then it's always hard to leave my clients for that amount of time. So I'm, I'm hemming and hawing on it. I, I can technically start in October if I want to start doing that, but I've got to, I've got to decide. Right. So, <laughs> and before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you what what are a couple, so how do you then take what you're seeing in these villages and implement it when you're in the States? I mean, do you find that you come back here and you're kind of disgusted and you're like, you know, I can't believe just the way people live and how they eat. And or are you, when you're back in the States, are you able to implement some of the things that you have learned from these other cultures? Yes. You know, I think, gosh, there's such a wave of emotions each time. One is that I just so wish that everyone could see what perfect health actually looks like. I think we have no idea 
in the West, what perfect health actually looks like. And so, you know, that's a bit sad, but at the same time, hopeful, you know, it's, it, I, I'm so lucky, Sarah, because I see people get better all the time. And then I also get to go to these regions where they don't get infections, they don't get the malaria and the African sleeping sickness. They're so robust and so healthy. And so I think we always have an opportunity to turn things around. And I can see why we've gone the way we have in America. I mean, the food is fun and it tastes great and it's exciting and it's quick and easy. But, or at least we think it's easy. It's far more easy to cook out of one pot once to twice a day and not have illness, really. But, uh, but you know, one thing that all those years being in bed and reading taught me was that oftentimes things have to get much worse before they can get better. And uh, you can relate that to China invading Tibet, right? What happened? Meditation was brought to the whole world. Many times things get very terrible before they get better, and that's often the impetus to improve things. So I'm not uh, unhopeful that things will turn around, but you know how it's impacted me, not too much. I, I was actually doing a lot of it uh, beforehand. I would say I find community to be far more important than I had realized. And I would like to hang out with my sisters all day the way they do in the tribes. But, uh, but it hasn't impacted me too much. It does really show me, though, on a, a regular basis, how important ancestral eating is and what a difference it can make on one's health. So it really helps to stay firm when I'm working with my clients. So do you, do you go... Uh out to eat when you're when you're here in the states do you go out and have a drink or are you super strict to where you don't drink at all you only prepare food at home no i'm not so i was for many many years you know for the last five years of my illness i didn't eat in restaurants and then for many years after that i didn't either and in fact when i uh finished school i moved out to portland because there were restaurants i could eat in where there's like grass-fed beef and things like that but i've been in remission now for nine years so i'm i'm quite comfortable i keep it low carb but i'm not uh anal anymore at all. I'm, I'm very good about what I buy for the house, but I don't sweat it too much at restaurants. I don't have personal intolerances or allergies or anything like that. So I don't have to be uh, wildly careful. So I'll just get like meat or fish, vegetables, that kind of thing. And every once in a while too, I'll veer off. So while I've certainly been in ketosis for the bulk of the last 15 years or so, I'm not rigid about it. I'll go out of it for periods of time if I'm in a region where uh, carbs are more common, say plantains, things like that. I'll be eating that. And as far as drinks, gosh, I went so many years without having any, but I absolutely do have it socially. I, I'm not a fan of wine or champagne or beer. I don't drink those. Definitely never beer, sometimes wine if it's social, but not for pleasure. And, uh, and I'll have, but I'll absolutely have a hard alcohol on occasion, like a tequila, soda, and lime. Uh, happy to do that. So, you know, but part of that is that I am from Ohio. I'm from a pretty casual eating background. <laughs> My mom's from a, a French background, the everything in moderation. So that's really impacted me. And I think also 
also my personality is just not very rigid. So while I, while I cultivated rigidity and discipline in order to heal, which was very necessary, uh, and held that for many years after remission, I'm not so rigid anymore. I'm more uh, moderate and low carb. I would say. And do you ever have moments where you start to feel any symptoms from your past or where you start to feel run down? Like I know traveling can be really hard on your body. And do you ever have times where you're like, oh, I got to slow down. I got to kind of re, re evaluate or are you like, I'm good. I'm just moving ahead. Yeah, I haven't had any symptoms. So the dysautonomia hasn't come back. But if I ever feel that I'm overdoing it, then I'll have a rest day where I'll just hang out and be low key. I tend to overbook everything. Like if my friends come for a visit, they leave exhausted, you know, so I, I tend to really overbook. So if I feel that I'm overdoing it, then I'll take a rest day. But I'm pretty good about getting great amounts of sleep and taking care of myself, morning routine, that kind of thing. So it's not, it's not too right. common. So when you are working with clients now, obviously you've learned so much and I, I feel like I have as well with just my own health, like I was saying before, but I also have learned that every body is different and individual and what works for some people might not work for another. So do you find that in working with your clients that these foundational principles work for everyone, but maybe some people need more um, fruits or vegetables or, or starchy carbs or do you feel like everyone benefits from more being in ketosis? You know, I, I work with about 41 different diets and the I could have someone with, or let's say four people with the same condition, and I may give them very different protocols from one another, but it has less to do with them being individual people as to where they are in the illness. So if it's very severe, I'm more likely to go towards ketosis, carnivore, that kind of thing, gaps. And if it's very light, I'm, I may just pull out lectins right? Something like that. So it has more to do with the severity uh, severity, and where they are with the illness as opposed to them individually. So you're dealing more with people that come to you are, are in some sort of chronic disease state. You're not really dealing so much with like weight loss, right? Correct. Yeah. Ha love to work with weight loss, but I don't tend to attract those right. folks. So where is your, <laughs> your practice is strictly online and that's how you deal with your clients? It is. Yeah, it's online and I base it in uh, Pacific Standard Time. So that way, whenever I'm traveling, I can be available for those days to work with everyone. And how can people find you and, and uh, reach, reach out to you, follow you? Oh, great. Uh, best spot is enableyourhealing.com. That's my website and I put on my podcast there and all of those kinds of things. That's awesome. And you're also on Instagram as well. I am. And uh, that's just Mary Ruddock CNC. I'm on Captain Soup's website and lots of other places. But between my Instagram, my YouTube and my website, you can definitely oh, find me. YouTube? Ah, also Mary, Mary Ruddock. Ruddock. Okay. And on mm -hmm. YouTube, are you, uh, it's more of your podcasts or what other things do you have on there? 
It's primarily my podcasts. I have, you know, hundreds of hours of footage from all these travels. So when things settle down, we'll put up clips from all of those different visits. But for now, it's mostly the podcast. I didn't even know about this. So I'm going to be going and checking that out. That's awesome. I'm like, when my kids get a little older, I might be reached out to and be like, do you need an assistant? (laughs) You should come. You you are always welcome to come on a trip. So cool. Well, um, so if there was one thing someone could incorporate into their life to improve their health, what would it be? And I know that maybe just a general practice or something that you've kind of feel like is necessary for everyone. Yeah. uh, Gosh, it's really hard for me to give you one. I'm tempted to say keep it under 100 grams of carbs because I haven't seen any of these, even the the higher carb villages go over about 100 grams of carbs per day. So that is not ketogenic or low carb. Low carb is 50 grams or under. Ketogenic is under 30. But but that should keep away the disease of metabolic illness, which are our chronic diseases, right? From diabetes, Alzheimer's, uh, cancer, heart disease, all of those. So I think that would be good. Lifestyle-wise, I would wake up at the same time every day. Okay. Wake up at the same time every day and make your bed because <laughs> it's you Always. <laughs> yes, exactly. And, um, and so when you work with people then are you like basing the prescription so to speak for them off of just what they tell you and what they're experiencing or are you having blood work done or because i just thought of that great question yeah so usually by the time someone comes to me they've had a great deal of blood work and lab work done and so they either have been diagnosed with the quite serious things or they've ruled the serious things out and they're dealing with something chronic and so it's not a have to so it's it's actually pretty uncommon for me to request anything if i do it's probably going to be like a spectra cell to see what's getting absorbed into the cell uh those kind of things but not not too common i usually go based on how they are very interesting oh well, I'm going to I'm going to let you go. I definitely feel like we could go on and on and I just I think that your story is incredible and it should be inspiring to so many people. You know, it took you I mean over a decade really, but it's like you stuck yes. with it and now your life is has changed. It's so much richer. You've learned so many incredible things and I I just hope so people listening realize that we hold the power. Like you really can do anything you put your mind to if you just stick with it. And so it's just, it's so inspiring to hear your story and definitely interesting. And it's incredible. The tools that are right at our fingertips, right? With just what we put in our mouths every day, you know? Isn't it incredible? Yes. It's so, it's so very empowering. Oh, well, thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate you taking the time to uh, to chat with me. Oh, thank you so much, Sarah. This has been lovely. Thank you for having me. Take care. Wow, truly inspiring. That's just so neat. And and <laughs> I would love to be able to travel with her someday. That would be so incredibly amazing to go into some of these tribes and see how they live. I mean, we are so used to having everything we want right when we need it and running down to the grocery store and having variety and, you know, oh, I feel like having this today and I think I'll just call Uber Eats tonight. I mean, I can't imagine how these people live and how different it is from the way we live. But you see, the more we get away from uh, 
ancestral ways of living and eating, the more disease we see. And even in the healthiest people, there is still usually disease. I mean, people look at me and I could be considered a, a, a you know, example of health. And I've dealt with my own issues for well over a decade. And it's truly incredible. And, and what's really neat is what we can do within what's within our own power to change and what we can do every day to change our health. And I definitely want to check out her YouTube channel and see what she's doing and what these tribes are doing, because I would love to try to incorporate more of these ancestral ways of eating uh, into my life. But I hope you all found that super cool and inspiring. You can go follow her and make sure you give us a five-star rating and subscribe. We'll see you all soon. Take care.